If we allow Julian Assange to be sent for the rest of his life, the rest of his life, into the dungeons of the U.S. injustice system, journalism, freedom, freedom of speech, democracy itself will have been murdered in plain sight on our watch. And that's why we are going to fight and fight and fight again to free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. course that was uh, Anton Karras, the music from the third man, the theme song, and at the top was the uh, inimitable, the great George Galloway. This is uh, Randy Critical, Randy Critical live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, and this is episode 25, and we have George Galloway as our one and only special guest, and he certainly uh, merits uh, that distinction. Uh, George Galloway, if you don't know who he is, then, um, you know, you may as well have been stuck on that uh, island in the Philippines with a Japanese soldier that they found 40 years later, because anyone that watches this show or listens to it knows who George Galloway is. He's a remarkable man. He's uh, a man of great accomplishment, a man who was uh, a member of uh, parliament uh, in the House of Commons, and um you know, he's written books, he's a lecturer, and he's the host of my favorite talk show, which is uh, Mother of All Talk Shows, uh, which you can get every Sunday night, and we'll be talking to him about that. Uh, but George, uh, George is just uh, someone that is so special. I really admire him. And uh, I'll tell you one thing, I wouldn't debate the guy. That would be a real fool's errand. It'd be like trying to outdraw Marshall Dillon and Gunsmoke. It just can't be done. You know, he's got a sharp wit. He's uh, well-read. Uh, he is as articulate. His gift of oratory is as good as, uh, you know, the great uh, Cicero. I mean, this guy really knows uh, how to uh, turn a phrase and uh, the use of metaphors, epiphors, diaphors, Churchill could not even touch. So, but, you know, he is committed to social justice economic justice, racial justice, just justice in general. And um, you just have to, um, you know, if you don't know him, look him up. But he's our special guest tonight. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a little anxious uh, to be uh, interviewing him one-on-one. -on -one. And so if, if you don't know, look him up. Uh, but George Galloway is really an accomplished individual. And uh, I'm here in New York. Kelly Lane is in North Carolina. She is engineering the show. And Jimmy Sunderland is in California, a little city called Lake Arrowhead, uh, doing uh, the editing later. So um, a lot of work into this program. And George Galloway certainly uh, deserves uh, to put the energy into uh, 
a program like this. So uh, we're going to begin uh, in light of the recent uh, uh, spate of uh, killing of unarmed African Americans uh, with a, a song, uh, and this is by um, Mr. Galloway's uh, favorite artist, and that being Bob Dylan. And, but this is um, a very somber one, and it's the death of Emmett Till. And we'll be right back with the one and only George Galloway. Falls down in Mississippi Not so long ago When the young boys from Chicago town Walked in a southern door This boy's fateful tragedy He should all remember well Skin was black, and his name was Emmett Till. Some men they dragged him to a barn, and there they beat him up. They said they had a reason, but I disremember what. They tortured him and did some things. Too evil to repeat There was screaming sounds inside the barn There was laughing sounds out on the street Okay, that was uh, Bob Dylan, uh, The Death of Emmett Till, which I think is appropriate uh, for this horrible week here in uh, the United States. Uh, I'm Randy Credigal. This is Randy Credigal live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. And as promised, we are being joined now by the great gregarious George Galloway, the best man. George, I thank think you very much. I really appreciate that wonderful introduction. Thanks. Well, I got to tell you, George, first of all, I want to say I watch your show now every Sunday. It's a three hour show and it goes by like a bullet train. And uh, which it's interesting because in the U.S. Uh, there's no really good left-wing radio personalities here. I mean, there's a lot of good people on the left that do radio, but they really can't hold your attention. The right wing in this country, guys like Rush Limbaugh, this guy Levine, uh, Sean Hannity, they rule the airwaves, and and it's because they know how to hold an audience. Why is the mother of all talk shows and shows that you've done before this like something that's, uh, that's so interesting and it totally bucks the trend in this country? Well, I think that's a very interesting observation and I'm grateful for your kind words about our show. Uh, and the first thing to say is that I should be good at it because I've been doing it since 2005, uh, not just uh, every Sunday, uh, but uh, oftentimes three nights, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I've done well over a thousand, maybe a thousand five hundred live radio stroke television shows. Uh, so, you know, on the principle that practice makes perfect, uh, I should have got the hang of it uh, by now. Uh, but you're right to say uh, that uh, so many. Uh, right-wing shock jocks have mastered the art of grabbing and holding people's attention. 
Now, uh, partly it's because reactionary and vile, misogynistic, sexist, racist, homophobic, and so on. That kind of talk is in a way easier to sell because it goes with the grain, oftentimes, of popular prejudice uh, amongst uh, a substantial section of the population. If you're going against the grain, uh, then you really need to be more than good uh, to grab and hold the attention of the type of folks that Rush Limbaugh and others are appealing to. Uh, but you must never give up trying to do that. Uh, just to bring along a basket and uh, put all the so-called deplorables in there is not the answer, uh, because uh, every so-called deplorable has a vote and a tongue and a brain and neighbors and family members and so on. You have to reach these folks and persuade them. Uh, and you have to do it in a language that doesn't repel. Which brings me to the second observation. Far too many left-wing people are deadly dull. One wouldn't want to be trapped in a lift with them, or elevator, as you say. Uh, so why would you trap yourself uh, on a radio show with them? Uh, far too many people on the left are deadly dull, earnest, and absolutely obsessed by the narcissism of the small difference. And that makes them unappealing uh, to people. So you have to be appealing. Uh, you have to be able to laugh, make them laugh, laugh at yourself. You have to be able to see the funny side of things, the ironic side of things. You have to be prepared to uh, be quick on your feet because you are dealing with, uh, with public responses, phoned in, tweeted in, emailed in, and so on to the show. And a lot of people on the left are not that quick-footed, to be honest. Uh, they are uh, set in their ways. They have blinkers on. And if somebody uses the wrong pronoun, uh, they are automatically, uh, you know, uh, uh, adopting their shape. And that's just not sensible to do that. It's certainly not sellable uh, to do that. So over the last uh, 15 years, I have, I think, perfected a blend uh, of uh, iconoclastic, radical uh, radio and television programming. And it's a pity there are not more people uh, doing it. And the point you make, uh, which stuck out to me, uh, is that my three-hour show goes by like a bullet train. And if it doesn't go by like a bullet train, if it goes by like a goods train, uh, chug-chugging along, not many people are going to stick with it for three hours, and they won't come back the next week either. Well, you have the formula, and you also have the personality and the charisma and, and the sense of humor, which is very important because people on the left really don't have a sense of humor. I mean, I'm, I'm on the left. I'm a satirist. I've worked in comedy. I've done a million TV shows. But I can tell you that the people on the left are difficult to get a laugh out of but not always. I used to do my act in front of the U.S. Embassy in Managua during the Contra War. And you had a lot of what were called Sandalistas there. They were actually my best crowd. All right. So but that was an international uh, crowd that was there. Uh, I remember the those Sandalistas. The <laughs> Sandalistas were everywhere. I yeah. met them in Nicaragua, but they spread out around the world. 
Yes. Uh, in Denmark, uh, you know, it, it down in Australia, I met a lot of people. I was there for five or six years. I did my act twice for Daniel Ortega back in 87 and 88 and Thomas Porter. Oh, I was around Nicaragua in the 80s. It's a pity we didn't bump into each other. Yeah, the guy I'm, from the West Wing was there with me once. Uh, what's his name? The, he was the president in the West Wing. Yeah, 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 I know. It's Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, uh, I used to uh, bump into uh, around Managua in those days. Fine man. That was, uh, you know, I ran into Jimmy Carter there one time. I sat down at a buffet Me with too. him. And uh, I did my impression of him. I said, uh, this is uh, my impression of you. I think you're doing a fine job monitoring these elections. Kind of blew me off, but uh, I tried. <laughs> it, wa it wasn't as good as my Reagan. My Reagan was much better. All right. So, uh, George, talking about, I want to play a clip. This is you, um, and this is from Mother's Mother of All Talk Shows, and this is about truth. I think it's a promotion. This is a great little promo for your show. We are the new mainstream, and we should not allow them to imagine. If someone calls me now, the only person I respond to is, is Piers Morgan. If Piers Morgan invites me on his show, I go there. Uh, because I like the show and I like him. But if somebody called me for a comment from The Independent uh, or The Telegraph, why would I pick up the phone to them only to be distorted in what I had to say? Why would I travel across London to go on Newsnight so the, uh, the, uh, the uh, perpetrators of Newsnight could seek to persuade the public that I'm some kind of criminal or madman or both. Why would I do that? I can speak to you directly without censorship, without distortion. And that's what I am doing. And you, by building this huge audience, are doing a great service, not to me, but to yourselves and to the public realm. All right. So uh, when did you record that, that promotion uh, called Truth? Uh, was that recently or is that a while ago? No, it's a while ago. Uh, I look younger now, so it must have been a while ago. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, my wife makes me look uh, younger every day. Uh, the, the reality is people have got to believe that you tell them the truth. Uh, it might not be right. Uh, it might be wrong. Uh, but they have to believe uh, that you believe it. Uh, that you're not saying it because someone told you to, uh, because someone told you not to say anything else, uh, someone paid you to, even worse. Uh, people have to believe you. And I think I have developed, uh, in Britain certainly, uh, a substantial uh, audience of people who maybe don't agree with me. Indeed, the most frequently stated thing uh, towards me is, I never thought I'd agree with you, but uh, they may not agree with me, but they have to believe that I believe what I'm saying and that I'm saying it for truthful uh, purposes. And it takes a long time to develop that reputation. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, I've been in public life uh, for uh, well over 40 years, nearly 50 years, in fact. I'm 65. I began in politics when I was 13. I was already extremely prominent by the time I was 17. Uh, and so I've been uh, doing this uh, for a long time. And if you do something for a long time, 
you build up a reputation and you must never compromise that reputation, never uh, take risks uh, of sabotaging or damaging uh, that, uh, that reputation in any way. And, uh, you know, I spend every day uh, being uh, sure about that. I, uh, I or ask myself, I pause momentarily, uh, am I, what I'm about to say, am, am I absolutely sure uh, that, that that's what I believe? And I'm clear, I think, uh, that that recipe of a bit of eloquence, I kissed the Blarney stone twice uh, when I was a kid in Ireland, hanging upside down, my mother holding me by the ankles. Uh, you wouldn't want to kiss the Blarney stone now, by the way, because people, people micturate on it. Uh, but I kissed it twice, so God gave me a certain a gift of, uh, of um, eloquence. Uh, but eloquence is of no use if people think you're compromised in what you're saying or you've compromised yourself. Right. I, uh, I, you, I, I looked at your background. Uh, you come from a uh, working class background, deeply uh, committed uh, to working class values, both your father and your mother. And I know that you started out at an early age. You were the head of the... Uh, the central, uh, la the central Committee of the Labor Party in Dundee at an early age. So, um, and your father had a big influence uh, on you uh, yeah. politically. Um, he was a trade union uh, guy, right? He started out as an electrician yeah. and then he went on to be a teacher. And so uh, did, both your parents had their big influence on George Galloway, is what I'm saying. Yes, uh, my father became a teacher in his 40s. Uh, having been made redundant uh, by an American company, National Cash Register, NCR, based in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he worked for them for 25 years and then was, of course, thrown on the scrap heap with thousands of others uh, when they more or less closed their operation in Dundee. Uh, and uh, he went on to uh, become a teacher because he'd been studying at night classes uh, basically all of my, uh, my life. He would always go out to night classes on a Tuesday and a Thursday, and he was always improving uh, himself. Uh, he had no uh, formal education. Other than that, he left school at 13, uh, and uh, I left school at 17. I never went to university. I'm self-educated. I've always tried to improve the stock of knowledge, and I'm blessed with a good memory. So when I read something, I remember it. Uh, and, uh, and I have the ability uh, of recall, which not many people uh, on the left, going back to that point, uh, do. Uh, they're, the, you know, the teenage scribblers uh, for whom the news uh, began when CNN turned up uh, and who have absolutely no idea uh, the prevailing conditions that created that news or, or uh, set the scene for that news. Uh, so I have uh, always, I mean, I'm always reading three, four books at the same time. I have them in different parts of the house uh, and I pick them up and I read a chapter or two and I might not pick that book up again uh, for several weeks, uh, but I'm all the time reading. And reading is essential uh, to vocabulary uh, as well as to general knowledge. Um, I'm an expert at the things I know about. I'm not an expert on everything. If you ask me now to uh, speak, impromptu on, I don't know, pensions policy uh, or, uh, or, or uh, 
health matters uh, uh, or American football. Uh, I couldn't do that. But the things I know about, I really know about. And that's essential. If you're proselytizing, if you're on a soapbox, you better know uh, what it is that you are talking about because you'll be quickly found out if you don't. Yes, I, I, I am the same way. I dropped out. I, mean, I did one year at junior college and uh, I got into show business, but I read all the time. I, I, I am self-taught. Uh, one of the books I, I read again for, I think, the third time in, the, in recent months is, and it's a thick book, it's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich uh, by William Schreier, which yep. he, he was uh, just like 1,200 pages. But when you read that book, amongst everything else in it, you learn about the role that the Soviet Union played in defeating fascism. And the other day, um, you, did, you had a speech on May 9th, the anniversary, 75-year anniversary of the ending of World War II, and you made a very passionate uh, speech there about how they've been just brushed out, and they, they took anywhere from 25 to 40 million uh, casualties, uh, death, deaths in, in World War II. So you spoke passionately. Why are people just totally writing off the Soviet Union the UK government, French government, US government? Yes, uh, on VE Day, uh, 75 uh, anniversary, which was, of course, extremely significant, uh, the White House, not Donald Trump, the White House Twitter account uh, hailed uh, the victory of the United States and Britain over Hitlerism. Uh, and this was adding insult to the very considerable injury. Uh, that the Soviet Union, now Russia, the successor country, uh, have uh, suffered uh, over the uh, decades. Uh, the Second World War matters a lot to me, not just because I was born uh, nine years after it ended, uh, because I grew up amidst the bomb damage, literally. Uh, it would be a decade more before that bomb damage was cleared. Uh, I used to play in the air raid shelters uh, that had been constructed in the back courts uh, of working class houses uh, in my city at that time. Uh, the war loomed large as a shadow uh, over my life personally. Uh, but much more importantly, uh, the Second World War loomed and in, indeed still looms over all of us, uh, not just uh, the venality of fascism, uh, the sacrifice required uh, to defeat it if you don't act quickly, uh, to nip it in the bud, to snuff it out before it becomes uh, ever more ferocious. Uh, but because what happens uh, when uh, people follow the uh, vile uh, rubric uh, of my enemy's enemy is my friend, and my enemy's enemy is my friend is what led to the Second World War. It's why the British and French governments, who easily could have done so in 1933, 34, and all the way up to uh, 39, could easily have stopped Hitler in his tracks. The world could have stopped fascism uh, in its tracks, in Abyssinia, uh, in Spain, in the Spanish Civil War, when Hitler and Mussolini uh, would have been easily defeated if we had stood up to them. Uh, but we didn't do that because we were hoping uh, that they would turn their guns and their ire on the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, th when that didn't happen, or at least didn't happen until later, uh, we 
we're all taken uh, apparently unawares. Not enough planes, not enough guns, not enough men, uh, not enough uh, defensive preparation, not enough ships. Uh, the German Navy entered the war with the biggest Navy in Europe, perhaps in the world. Uh, Japan entered the Second World War uh, with one of the biggest navies in the world. And they were allowed to do that when they could and should have been stopped. And then, of course, since the war, uh, the world has been divided uh, on Cold War lines. And those Cold War lines emerged out of the Second World War. And even when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, socialism uh, in the Soviet form disappeared. The Cold War didn't end. Uh, it, there was a brief interregnum when Russia was lying drunk on the floor uh, and the West were picking its pockets uh, when it was possible to see uh, a new relationship with Russia. But as soon as Putin came along, uh, sobered Russia up, got it up off the floor and began to uh, return Russia to something like its level of uh, prosperity, uh, national prestige, importance in the world. Uh, that's when uh, the Cold War uh, began again. And now, of course, it has a new front vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Uh, so the Second World War is important. The 75th anniversary was important. And the contempt showed to the Red Army, uh, who inflicted four-fifths of all Nazi casualties in the war and who lost, as you say, officially 26 million people in the defeat of fascism were airbrushed out uh, of the anniversary. And that is simply unforgivable. Well, you know, you can really read about that, uh, all the statistics, all of the butchery, the brutality on civilians, the collaboration uh, amongst uh, nations that we're now supporting over there against Russia in uh, this great book written, I think, in 56 by a guy who was there the whole time, and that's William Schreier. And I recommend it, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Oh, I've read it many times. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, it's a staple. Yes. And um, talking about Spain, you're right. Uh, we could have done, they could have done something. The U.S. could have done something to help out Spain and snuffed it back then. But we know why they didn't. We really do. Only the Soviet Union supported the Spanish Republic. That was it. And the French sometimes let them get arms in there, but not a lot, you know. And there were a lot of Americans. Uh, their, their policy was non-intervention. Uh, but uh, non-intervention when fascism is invading a country. Hitler and Mussolini are bombing, uh, arming, and financing uh, a fascist takeover. Uh, then that's not non-intervention. That is intervention on the side of the fascists. You've been uh, anti-war. I mean, there's a, a certain theme. As I look at these videos of you over the years and following you, uh, there is this, like Julian Assange, you really are an ardent anti-war uh, individual activist when you were a politician. In fact, when you were a politician, I want to play this um, trip you took to D.C. Mr. Galloway goes to Washington, and this is you before the... Uh, uh, one of the Senate subcommittees. I gave my heart and soul to stop you committing the disaster that you did commit in invading Iraq. And I told the world that your case for the war was a pack of lies. Senator, 
This is the mother of all smokescreens. You are trying to divert attention from the crimes that you supported, from the theft of billions of dollars of Iraq's wealth. Have a look at the real oil for food scandal. Have a look at the 14 months you were in charge of Baghdad, the first 14 months, when $8.8 .8 billion of Iraq's wealth went missing on your watch. Have a look at the real scandal breaking in the newspapers today, revealed in the earlier testimony in this committee, that the biggest sanctions busters were not me or Russian politicians or French politicians. The real sanctions busters were your own companies with the connivance of your own government. Okay, so that was like pretty gutsy going down there. How did that come about? And I just played part of it, as you saw. But how did it come well, about? Well, uh, I, I called them and insisted uh, that I should be heard. I was, after all, a British member of parliament. I had been introduced, slandered. Uh, by this subcommittee, uh, which hadn't even emailed me, called me, still less invited me to uh, give evidence uh, to them. Uh, they uh, found me guilty uh, without ever having telling me there was a trial on. Uh, so I called them uh, from the British Parliament and insisted uh, to be heard. And within 24 hours, I grabbed my toothbrush and I was on my way. Uh, there was no guts involved, Randy, it was a delight for me uh, to get the opportunity to get up close and personal with these uh, princes, because that's how they see themselves, in the court uh, in Washington, the royal court uh, in Washington. It was a great opportunity for me. It didn't turn out that way for them. Uh, Senator Norman Coleman, as was, uh, began that day as a presidential hopeful. He literally was uh, running uh, to be the Republican nominee at some stage. Uh, but he didn't end the day that way. And not long afterwards, he was no longer even a senator. And uh, joy of joys, I was in Minnesota uh, on the very day that he was defeated. Uh, so I was able to dance on his political grave. But in truth, he dug that grave uh, for himself. As George Bush might have put it, they misunderestimated me. Uh, they <laughs> thought that I was uh, some, uh, I don't know, street corner agitator uh, that they would quickly crucify. Uh, but I had been a boxer when I was young. And uh, as I put it at the time, uh, I know when you're in a fight, uh, there's a light in the opponent's eye, which begins to die and goes out. Uh, and when that light begins to die, you know they no longer wish to be there. And I saw that light dying in their eyes that day. They, if, they, if it was a boxing match, they would have asked the trainer to throw in the towel, uh, but they couldn't, uh, not least because they had assembled the television cameras live uh, from all over the world. And I, I could sense them thinking to themselves, whose idea was this? What idiot thought this was a good idea to bring this guy here on prime time uh, to uh, basically destroy us? Uh, so it was my finest hour. Uh, it was my, the best day 
so far at least, uh, of my life. It will live on long after I'm gone, I think, as an example of speaking truth to power, of not being intimidated uh, by persons or positions, not being intimidated by, by the, the clamor uh, of the media and its political echo chamber. Uh, and as I say, there was no guts involved. I was raring to go. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it was like Mike Tyson straining to get into the ring against, yeah. I don't know, Joe Bugner. I would say more like Muhammad Ali. You came in there and uh, you did the rope-a-dope for about two seconds and then you uh, went boom, boom and knocked him out. It was really great uh, theater. Uh, and uh, I like it when you can uh, actually laugh and use the word traduced because you don't hear the word traduced that often. And you have been traduced, you've been uh, smeared, you've been libeled uh, by various newspapers who've tried to discredit you, but you've all, they've always had to retract. It was an order. I've won, uh, Randy, I, I've won literally millions of pounds in yes. damages. I know uh, that. From mass media. From one alone, uh, the Daily Telegraph, uh, I won 2.4 million pounds from one publication. Uh, and uh, I've, I've won uh, against the Christian Science Monitor. I got so many, I couldn't, you wouldn't have time to hear them all. Uh, yes. Because I, I take the view that there's enough about me, what I do, what I think, what I say, uh, to criticize fairly uh, and even trenchantly. Uh, but if you tell lies about me, then I'm going to go after you because the truth is important. If you say I was here when I was actually there, if you say I did this when I've never done that, uh, I'm going to uh, pursue you. And that uh, strategy has worked, finally. Uh, they don't tend to say anything about me anymore uh, because it's turned out to be just too expensive. Well, that brings me to my point here, uh, George, where, where I'm going with this. See, you've been victimized uh, by uh, lies and uh, libel, slander, and all of that. You've gone through the ropes with all of that. Um, now, maybe is that one of the reasons why you were one of the few people out there who spoke in behalf, on behalf, passionately, eloquently, uh, for Julian Assange when all of the smear jobs started against him. You didn't buy that. And I got a tape of this right here of you at the Oxford Union here defending him way back. A lot of people claim they've been behind Assange forever. Well, I got proof of it. This is at the Oxford Union in 2012. In fact, Julian Assange is officially, capital letters, an enemy of the United States. So why will Sweden not give an assurance that a man not charged but wanted for questioning about allegations of sexual assault which morphed into allegations of rape, why will they not give such an assurance? You are intelligent people, able, I think, to smell the rat in that story. The rat is that Assange is wanted in the United States for telling the world the truth through WikiLeaks about gigantic crimes involving not just the rape, but the murder of millions 
of people. Many, many of them women. That's why they want to get their hands on Julian Assange. And I'm proud to stand in defense of him. Okay, there you are defending Julian uh, on the scandalous smears uh, that were pushed out there by the Crown Prosecutor Services and the uh, Marian Nye in, uh, in Sweden at the behest of the CPS. Uh, but you knew. I mean, a lot of people did not be believe that he was innocent. How did you know? Because you were ahead of your time. Uh, well, first of all, I hate witch hunts. Uh, uh, when, I, when I see the whole world descending on someone's head, uh, I'm automatically uh, suspicious. And I have uh, lots of experience uh, of that. And having been the victim of witch hunts many times myself in the past, I am temperamentally uh, opposed to them. So I immediately bristle uh, about them. Um, I, uh, I, I stood up for Julian Assange, uh, not just uh, from the start, but on the most difficult thing. You see, the enemies of Julian Assange knew what they were doing. They didn't accuse him of shoplifting. Uh, they didn't accuse him of passing a, a, a fake note uh, or a false check. Uh, they didn't accuse him uh, of uh, any of the things that wouldn't have cut through in the way that what they did accuse him of did with the liberals, the progressives, uh, the left, and so on. They knew that if they could accuse Julian on sexual matters, on issues of sexuality, on women's rights, that they could destroy him amongst the very constituency that would be most likely to defend him. And when I defended him, uh, I was then myself witch-hunted and victimized uh, over my stand uh, on that. I knew instinctively at first, and then with chapter and verse, uh, that the allegations against Julian in Sweden were false. Uh, I had the benefit uh, of knowing him personally. Uh, I met him first in the Ecuador embassy, but I had worked with him uh, prior to that without having met him. So I knew that he was a man of the finest metal, really, uh, a treasure, a man that uh, in a sane, logical, rational world would be a Nobel laureate, a man who stood up to the power, uh, the same power I stood up to in the Senate, but with a very great deal more danger uh, to him uh, than I faced. After all, I was a British member of parliament. They weren't going to put me in an orange jumpsuit and take me to Guantanamo Bay, at least I didn't think that they were. Uh, but Julian had no such assurance. Uh, he went into the lion's den uh, without any, uh, any of uh, the protections uh, that I had. And he did it on the most important things, the issues of war, torture, uh, and the abuse of power. And on that track, he has contributed to public life, to civil society, to democracy, uh, to freedom of speech, more than any other human being uh, in the world. So I knew 
uh, that Julian Assange was not just an honest man, an honorable man, but he was a noble man. I, I, I don't know if you know the Highland uh, painting, A Stag at Bay. There you have this beautiful stag with its wonderful antlers standing proudly at bay, surrounded by dozens of snarling dogs uh, seeking to tear it to pieces. For me, Julian Assange was always the stag, and the snarling beasts were the mass media that had feasted on the dripping roast of stories produced by WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. But when the time came, like Pavlov's dogs, uh, they set off in pursuit uh, of Julian Assange. And in those circumstances, there's only one thing I can do that any decent person can do, and that is to go and stand by the side of the stag. Yeah, you're a guy that will stay in the foxhole with you while all these other guys and women in journalism, they just like left them there to die, Julian Assange. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I was there for the trial, or at least that the hearing back in February. Uh, I was there for a rally and uh, went to the first, second, third day of the trial. And on the 25th, which was a Wednesday, a Tuesday, I couldn't make it to St. Pancras Church. I was going to go with Craig Murray. Uh, and when Craig came back late that night, uh, he told me that you delivered this galvanizing speech, which you did. And we played a part of it in the uh, beginning, cold opening. And I'm going to play a part here. Uh, and you talk here about um, the mainstream media not being at the church or at the trial on that second day. Who cannot tremble with indignation? at the idea that the man that blew the whistle on the war crimes is in Belmarsh and the war criminals are on the BBC and ITV and raking in millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. The criminals, the criminals have made it a crime to report on the crimes that they committed. Ponder that. That's now the country that we are living in. Who cannot tremble with indignation? Well, 95% at least of Britain's journalists didn't even show up today to hear the defense's argument. 95% of Britain's broadcasters are not trembling with indignation. If you cannot tremble with indignation at any injustice anywhere, you are not a human being. You have no pulse and you have no soul. And that's the reality of the so-called fourth estate in this country. I spit upon them. This church should be bulging with journalists. All right. So um, you got pretty upset about that, that they were not there. You talk about the, he's exposing the criminals and now he's on trial and the criminals are making millions of dollars 
on television and other media. George. That's a fact. Uh, the, the criminals have made it a crime uh, to report on their crimes. And the journalists have gone along with it. And so the point I was making in that speech is if they really were journalists, then the hall would have been full of journalists because nothing is a greater threat uh, to the purpose of journalism uh, than the persecution of Julian Assange. If it is successfully carried through, if he disappears, God forbid, into uh, an American dungeon, never to be seen again, then this won't just have a chilling effect on journalism, on broadcasting. It will have a fatal, deadly effect. Because who wants, who's going to be prepared to be the next Julian Assange? If someone uh, blows a whistle somewhere and leaks to you uh, evidence of a great crime, thousands of great crimes, carried out by the powerful, who's going to publish those? Well, people will take a look at what happened to Julian Assange, and they'll say, not me. So if the purpose of journalism is to hold power uh, to account, corporate power, state power, international uh, political power, if that is the purpose, and one imagines that that's what all those who say they went into journalism uh, inspired by, uh, by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in All the President's Men, and that's what most of them say, believe it or not, uh, then they should have been there and they should be standing beside Julian. Instead, they are involved in systematic character assassination of Julian Assange. They have made it easier for the criminals uh, to put Julian Assange uh, on a cross. And I'll never forgive them uh, for that. Uh, I already had a jaundiced view uh, of uh, the overwhelming majority of journalists and broadcasters. I've got to say it has now passed beyond that. Uh, it is literally unforgivable, at least for me. Well, you know, in that same speech, uh, George, you talk about your role um, and, and this extradition law that he's uh, subjected to. Can, can you talk about the extradition law that should bar him from being extradited to begin with? Well, it has the benefit of being written on the face of the act. Uh, and for a judge, as this barrister judge uh, is uh, claiming, uh, that what's written on the face of the act uh, is not relevant to these extradition proceedings. I mean, it, to call it Kafkaesque doesn't do it justice. It's like uh, Joseph Heller, uh, Catch-22. It is literally absurd. It says on the face of the act that a person may not be extradited under this extradition treaty uh, if the offenses that they are accused of are political offenses. And as I pointed out uh, in that speech, I actually remonstrated with the then Interior Secretary, Home Secretary, uh, David Blunkett, now Lord Blunkett, uh, at the time, because I was one of a very few 
who was opposing this extradition treaty. I was a member of parliament, of course, at the time. And I remonstrated uh, with uh, David Blunkett. He's a blind man, by the way. I literally took him by the lapels uh, to, so that he would know how strongly I felt about it, not in an aggressive way. He was, at that time, a colleague of mine. Uh, I took him by the lapels, and I, I gave him a long uh, rant, I think you'd call it, uh, about the dangers of political extradition. And he calmly said to me, George, everything that you are worried about cannot happen because of the provision in the treaty uh, that political offenses are excluded. And now I find that Julian Assange, who's accused of crimes which can only, literally only be de uh, 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 described as political offenses, is being <laughs> deported to a dungeon forever uh, on the basis of a treaty that was supposed to protect people accused of political crimes. That is uh, some place, uh, George. I mean, he's in a dungeon now. The only problem is if he comes over here to the US, he'll be in a um, supermax dungeon and underground and unable to talk uh, with anybody to the press, anything with family. Uh, so that is still up in the air. I don't understand why the uh, British government uh, is, they're taking such a beating for the way they, there's not even any window dressing here, the way they are behaving in this entire opera. You know, they are, they don't care, it seems like. I mean, everything that they've done is bad and it seems like they don't care. They're just gonna go through with it. Who's pulling the strings here? Uh, the United States is pulling the strings, uh, and with all respect to you, uh, they're not taking much of a beating because the mainstream media uh, simply don't cover this at all. Uh, they're taking a beating from thee and me, uh, but they can live with that. They can live with uh, Craig Murray's uh, lacerating, eviscerating blogs uh, because uh, not enough people are yet listening and reading. Uh, our beating uh, that we are administering. As long as the television, the radio, and all the newspapers, especially the liberal newspaper, are either ignoring Assange or are actively assisting the persecution uh, of Assange, uh, then the government isn't paying very much of a political price for this at all. Now, it may be higher up the British judicial tree uh, because this joke uh, of a, a judge that is dealing with the case at this level uh, is uh, the bottom of the rung uh, of the British judiciary. It may be uh, that further up the tree when this is appealed and appealed uh, that there will be a judge somewhere uh, who will get this case on their desk and uh, decide uh, that the uh, destruction that it implies of anything called justice uh, will have to be uh, stopped. Uh, I still live in hope of that. It's not that I don't think the judiciary is corrupted. It is, uh, but it's less corrupted than all the other institutions of the British state. As I put it, 
I'd rather take my chances in front of a British judge rather than a British politician or a British journalist. Uh, and it's marginal, uh, but uh, that would be my judgment. Um, the United States is literally in the courtroom. Uh, they are, their officials are in the courtroom, sitting behind the British prosecution uh, uh, council and uh, telling them what to say, uh, telling them what to agree to and what not to agree to. It is the clearest example yet uh, that Britain has become the 51st state of the United States of America, except we don't have First Amendment rights. You know, George, I'm, I'm looking at that, and I was there uh, watching it uh, unfold those, those three days, and I was totally appalled by it. Uh, and I, I look at the conditions that Assange has been, uh, what's, what's been foisted on him in this horrible Belmorish prison, and it looks dank, and you know, you know the COVID has killed a few people there already. You've got that traffic going to Woolwich Station, and then hanging out at the Great Harry's, some of the guys that uh, drink at the pub who work at the, uh, at the the courtroom there, and they're going in and out with all of that traffic. And he's, it, you know, he's definitely susceptible here. But even if he wasn't, the, the conditions are so horrible. And I'm looking at Rudolf Hess was in Spandau. It was a beautiful place compared to this. And then I look at the luxurious accommodations that Augusto Pinochet, uh, was accorded when he was up for extradition 15 years ago. Well, uh, Belmarsh uh, Prison is Britain's Guantanamo Bay. Uh, it is uh, a gulag uh, separate from the rest of the British prison system. And it, its purpose was to incarcerate the worst criminals on the earth. It is supposed to be for mass murderers for child killers, for terrorists, uh, for people who cut other people's heads off. And a guy is in there for the alleged crime in another country. He's convicted of nothing in Britain. The alleged crime of publishing documents. A gentle man, a man with no history of violence, of no conceivable physical danger to anyone. And he's in Britain's Guantanamo Bay. And you this know. is to send the message yeah. uh, that this man is dangerous and we are not going to take any chances of him slipping out of our hands. That's why the trial is in a court in the bowels of the jail. Uh, that's why all the pretenses all the prettification of the British judicial system, uh, of proper courtrooms, uh, with the public in the gallery, uh, with the press able to sit in a press box, justice being done and being seen to be done, with the accused freely able uh, to communicate with their counsel. All of these uh, prettifications of the British judicial system have been completely trashed ripped up in front of our eyes. But nobody knows about it, Randy. Nobody knows about it, therefore can't care about it because the media have simply refused uh, to report it or report its importance. 
Well, you know, uh, I, I did see, and I thought this was a hopeful sign. This happened like two, three months ago. You had Jeremy Corbyn in the House of Commons uh, making this passionate speech on behalf of Julian Assange. And it seemed like Boris Johnson uh, concurred with him. Did you see that little, uh, that little exchange they had? Yes, uh, but Corbyn waited until he was uh, no longer the leader of the opposition uh, to do this. Uh, and uh, Johnson's answers were, of course, non-committal and have not been uh, followed through. Uh, the political class, there's not one, not one member of parliament who would today raise the flag of the defense of Julian Assange, not one. Uh, the truth is, uh, the political class and the media have ganged up together either to persecute Assange or to simply ignore him. A judge is therefore our only remaining hope. How would you compare this case to the case of Harry Dunn and uh, Anna Sokola getting away with that homicide? Well, I'm heavily involved in the Harry Dunn case. And, uh, I know frequently that's why I asked showcase, I frequently showcase it because how flagrant a contradiction would you want to see that an American intelligence officer of some seniority, it turns out, drives up the wrong side of the road by her own admission and kills a British teenager, fakes the case for her diplomatic immunity from prosecution, flies back to the United States and declares that she will never return and is promoted by the US government to a still higher position in the intelligence community. Whilst Julian Assange is being extradited, Ansarkoulis will never and can never be extradited. This treaty is the most unequal treaty that Britain has ever signed. And it happened under a Labour government under Tony Blair uh, and Gordon Brown's Labour government. Uh, it is grotesque and the lack of justice for poor Harry Dunn and his poor mother, grieving still, and the injustice being perpetrated under the same treaty against Julian Assange makes the case more powerfully than even you and I could make. Yes, I, I've seen your, um, your shows on that. People can see all of your shows, uh, Mother of All Talk Shows. Uh, it is absolutely brilliant. It's every Sunday. It's, you can hear an audio and then video later on uh, in the evening. Is that correct, George? No, you can, you can watch it live uh, on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, or you can listen if you're in the Washington, D.C. area on 105.5 FM or on AM uh, across the United States or well, online. I, uh, I, listen to it, I listen to it live all the time. And it's great, the last show, every week. You had a great debate, by the way, uh, a very civil debate with your uh, Scottish uh, colleague, uh, Craig Murray. Uh, and I don't want to get into either side on that one, on independence and non-independence, because uh, you guys both made great arguments 
and I'm not taking a side on it because I live here, so I don't have to take a side there, right? right. Uh, but you both made really cogent uh, points, and uh, you, people should watch that uh, debate because it was a civil debate. And by the way, correct it's the, only, it's, it's the only thing in the world, I think, that I disagree with Greg Murray about. And as you say, in those circumstances, civility is a must. Yeah. Well, he's a big admirer of yours, and, and we all know he's in trouble right now. He faces uh, jail time uh, in the, uh, within a month and a half uh, for, uh, for reporting on a case and supposedly influencing a jury. What is your take on that? Uh, well, there are severe uh, legal restrictions uh, on what I can say about that. Okay. Uh, except that uh, it, it's strange, to say the least, uh, that of all the people uh, reporting on the Alex Salmond case, the, the one reporter who has been prosecuted is the Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador to Uzbekistan. Uh, that is extremely strange. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, I've spent some time with him uh, in uh, Edinburgh with him and his wife, Nadira, and spent three days hanging out with him, except for I didn't get to go see you and him speak at St. Pancras Church. Uh, but he's, he's a really a great guy. Another thing you both have in common with a lot of passion is your disdain for Blairism. I'm going to play this uh, New Year's Eve uh, response to Tony Blair's New Year's Eve uh, message. And this is a great speech by you. Tony Blair has a lot to answer for in British politics, but he will always be remembered for his international crimes, beginning with Yugoslavia uh, and his double harness with the cowboy Bill Clinton. He will always be remembered for his theorizing of the principle of intervention in other people's internal affairs, usually with blood and iron. But he'll never be forgotten by Iraq. The erstwhile Trotskyite John McDonnell, the outgoing shadow chancellor in the Jeremy Corbyn administration, as was, he says that all is forgiven. And when asked by Mr. Blair's spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, if Tony Blair was a war criminal, he answered most definitively, absolutely not. Well, Mr. MacDonald, the majority of people in Britain consider Tony Blair a war criminal all right. And the vast majority of people around the world think so too. Some of us will never give up as long as God gives us breath, the fight to bring him to justice. Okay, so uh, there you go. Hammering Blair, uh, saying he's responsible and hasn't faced the music. Give us uh, your, uh, your, uh, your whole, um, you know, uh, backdrop to your decision yeah. for well, uh, Blair. Randy, I, I will pursue Tony Blair as long as God gives me breath and after me, my sons, uh, because he is responsible, directly co-responsible with George W. Bush for an act of mass murder on a scale that we have not seen uh, in many decades, not since Kissinger, the 
oldest living war criminal have we seen a political leader lay waste to uh, so many millions of lives as Tony Blair and George W. Bush. Now, at least Bush has had the grace, if I can put it that way, uh, to retire to his ranch and uh, read his coloring books. Uh, <laughs> Tony Blair has never left the stage, never stopped earning obscene amounts of money from even more obscene sources. He receives nine million a year from the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. There's just one example. The man who sawed up my friend, the American journalist Adnan Khashoggi, and flushed his uh, remains down the drain, soaked in acid. Get your head around that. That's the man who's paying Tony Blair $9 million. Nine? Now, to see a man responsible for such crimes still pontificating, able to summon the British media at the snap of his finger on any subject from Brexit to a coronavirus to British or international uh, politics is it's like a red rag to a bull uh, for me. I simply can't accept it. I must charge. I must put my head down uh, and charge. Now, I'm making a film at the moment, which will be out later this year. Would have been out earlier, but for the interruption of uh, the coronavirus. It's called Killing Kelly. And it's about just one of the casualties of Mr. Blair's Iraq war. David Kelly, Dr. David Kelly, was a British weapons expert who predicted uh, after he had begun leaking the secrets of British exaggeration or lies about the case for the war, he predicted that he would be found dead in the woods. And guess what? That's exactly where he was found dead. Now, my investigation of this case, which you'll see in the film, Killing Kelly, uh, leads me ineluctably to the conclusion that Dr. David Kelly did not, could not have committed suicide. Something else other than suicide uh, was involved. So I will never stop, as long as I'm alive, well, pursuing justice for the people of Iraq and of course, now that ISIS has cascaded across the world directly as a result of the Bush and Blair War, are the people of all countries, not just in the Muslim world, though mostly there, but in our own country, on the streets of London, Paris, uh, Brussels, Germany, Berlin, the victims of the atrocity of the Iraq war are still multiplying and the impact of the Iraq invasion and occupation is reverberating still and it will still be reverberating throughout the lifetime of the youngest person watching this interview today.
Well, I must tell you, uh, you make a very good case against uh, Tony Blair. I was already on the same page with you, but you also, uh, Blairism, the philosophy of Blairism, which has infected the Labor Party, and you started your own party. Uh, I, we're short on time now, um, no. but I, I, I want to ask you about the uh, work, uh, Workers' Party and uh, why you developed this new party and Blairism. Can you get that all in? Very quickly, yeah, I will. Uh, I will indeed. Uh, just as Bill Clinton destroyed the Democratic Party's original purpose, so Tony Blair destroyed the Labour Party's original purpose. What is that original purpose? To stand up for the working people, the people who have nothing to sell other than their labour, uh, those now too old to work and those still too young to work, their families, their children, and their parents. Every country needs such a party. America had in an imperfect form, the Democrats no longer has. Britain had the Labour Party in an imperfect form, no longer has. So on the principle that every country needs a workers party, we've set up our own. And people can check it out at uh, workerspartybritain.org. Right. I will be promoting that a lot, and uh, we'll play a speech from uh, that. Uh, I think it was the other day in which they were raising or um, bringing up some of the uh, great uh, uh, successes of the uh, Chinese Revolution. And uh, you got up there with, the, I mean, you, you had the entire audience on the floor laughing when you said, you said uh, look, we can't take money from the Chinese diplomats and whoever here is from China. But if you could just spare some sound equipment, you know, just donate some sound equipment because it was the worst microphone ever invented that you were speaking at, at that, uh, I think it was the workers uh, party um, event. But uh, just shows your great sense of humor, uh, George. Uh, now I'm gonna ask you here, uh, what you would like to go out on before I come back to my closing. It's either going to be the Red Army Choir International or it's going to be Paul Robeson in front of the Scottish Miners in 1949. Well, uh, any of those would be an honor to be associated with. But if your copyright uh, situation allows it, uh, my current favorite is Bob Dylan, Things Have Changed. Uh, yes. And that's because it's an Oscar winner, by the way, and deservedly so. Uh, because when you get to my age, the lines, I used to care, <laughs> but things have changed. Well, I don't care about the rich and the powerful. I want nothing from them. And nothing that matters to me can be taken away by them. And therefore, things have changed. I no you longer care. <laughs> Well, you did that pretty well. Uh, you just didn't have the uh, guitar. Um, but uh, Bob Dylan, I actually worked the same place that he started out in the West Village called the Village Gate. My friend, oh, wow. Lugoff, and I worked there in the well, my, uh My Sputnik show uh, on Saturday, this Saturday, uh, interviews uh, a professor of philosophy from New Jersey uh, who was the first accredited diplomat, sorry, first accredited academic at the uh, Bob Dylan archive in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and it's an absolutely fascinating interview. I commend it to you 
and to your viewers. Okay, well, listen, uh, check uh, George out, uh, and I'm going to flip a coin what I'm going to play here going out. You're welcome. George, You're welcome. I want to thank you, and I, you, you've done a, you do great work. Thank you for all that you've done, and uh, you're such a great role, role model. And by the way, I'm one month older than you are, okay? I'm July, and you're in August, 54. Okay. All right? Well, there's life, there's life in us old dogs yet, Randy. All right. Hope to see you uh, if that trial resumes in September. God right. willing, I hope so. The great George. Thank you very much indeed. It's been right. an honor. All right. Thank you very much, George. And uh, do check him out. Uh, uh, George, the website is georgegalloway.com. All right. That's it, folks. Uh, we'll be right back with some closing remarks. Thank you very much. I saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead. Says Joe, but I ain't dead. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Okay, I hope that Mr. Galloway liked that tune. And, you know, it's Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson. 1949 in Glasgow for the Scottish mine workers. And uh, he was a great man. Uh, but I know what you're thinking. Well, Credico is fearful of uh, playing the international uh, because uh, he doesn't want to get red baited. Well, that's not it. Because I'm going to play it. And you can red bait me all you want. But the Soviet Union, Without them in World War II, if not for them, I would be doing this show in German. How do you like that? All right, so we're going to play a little bit of the, uh, of the International Red Army Choir. And this is uh, a tribute to the great contribution, the overwhelming contribution by the Soviet Union in defeating fascism and Nazism in World War II. Okay, all right. You can red bait me all you want, but I'll do that again. Plus, it's a beautiful tune. Uh, once again, I'm Randy Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 25, uh, with uh, 
our special guest, the great George Galloway. Um, if you'd like to support this show, and we do need your support because we are hoping to do this type of programming all the way through Mr. Assange's next hearing. And uh, we are running a deficit here. Don't, it's not like we have a big overhead, but we do. We have four or five people working on this. And, um, you know, I'm not like, uh, I'm a great activist, but I'm a terrible capitalist. So I don't uh, make a lot of money and uh, we could use some funding to support uh, this uh, ongoing program. And you can do that by going to Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. We could seriously use your help. I want to thank everybody involved in this show today. I want to thank uh, Jimmy Sunderland, who is doing the editing out in Lake Arrowhead, California. And uh, with me right now is uh, Kelly Lane, uh, our uh, engineer. And uh, more than that, I also want to thank Sarah Kunstler and Emily Kunstler and Margaret Ratner Kunstler for their contribution uh, to this program. Uh, Anonymous Scandinavia, wherever you are, please contact us. All right, so uh, that uh, just about does it. Um, and we'll see you soon. Uh, we're going to go out with this uh, tune by uh, Billie Holiday, written by uh, Manny Maripol, the, the uh, guardian uh, father of uh, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's two children. Uh, as you know, they were framed and murdered uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, in the 50s, and Manny Maripol uh, and his wife took these children in. They were tots, and uh, we all know it from Nina Simone, but this is by Billy Holiday. And uh, w with what has happened in the last week, in the last couple of years, in the last two centuries, uh, African Americans gunned down by law enforcement, enslaved. Uh, put to work, uh, convict leasing, put in jail with a drug war. But in the last week, it's really heated up and it's got to stop. Southern trees, they're strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene. Of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh here is a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to 
Ah! 